So if you've got your Bibles, church, and I hope that you do, turn them to Romans chapter 16. If you're new with us, um, we've been walking through the book of Romans for about three years now, and we're in the last chapter now. As we dive into chapter 16, um, we're in the middle of our summer, and so um, I'm going on a mission trip this week, so I'll be gone next Sunday. Um, and so it's going to be kind of spliced up a little bit, which is unfortunate because all of this really does go together. But chapter 16 can be divided into really four sections, the first of which we'll cover this morning in the first two verses, the commendation of Phoebe. Then in verses 3 through 16, which is the bulk of chapter 16, um, Paul extends all kinds of greetings to various individuals. Something that we, at least of this magnitude, that we don't see in any of his other letters. There are some 30-odd people that are mentioned by name in chapter 16 as Paul extends specific greetings to them. And um, some might just kind of breeze through that and look at that as, oh, that's just one of those begats. So-and-so begat this, so-and-so begat this. Paul thanks this person and thanks this person. But these are real people in a very real church that have real meaning behind them. And so... Uh, we want to look at that separately. Then in verses 17 through 20, Paul makes a, an appeal, a closing appeal to be careful and to watch out for. It's a warning against uh, division in the church, and it's a warning against those who would teach false doctrine in the church. So it's, a, it's, it's Paul kind of his closing attempt to protect the body of Christ. And then the closing verses, verses 21 through 27, are his final greetings and his doxology, his praise of God for all that he's covered in this entire letter. So this morning, we're going to cover the first of those. My original plan was to cover the first two sections, uh, but we've got a busy morning. We had a youth testimony. We're going to pray over our mission team at the end, um, and so we don't have time to go through all of that. So we're just going to cover the commendation of Phoebe this morning found in verses 1 and 2. But to help put it in context, as we read, I want us to read all the way through verse 16 to help us understand the context in which we find this commendation of this woman. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read. This is the word of God, church. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give my thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus and my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristopulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. 
Greet those workers in the Lord, Trufana and Trufosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asuncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. We don't need to hear anything from man this morning. We need to hear from you. And so we thank you that we have a word from you. We don't need to look anywhere else except in this book that we hold in our hands. And Lord, we are so grateful that we can trust that what we hold in our hands is the very breath of God. And so we ask that you speak to us this morning, Lord. Speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathered here. Speak to us and, and, and sanctify us by the truth that is found here. Sanctify us as a church, Lord. And Lord, we also pray for those among us who may not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We pray that you would speak the truth of the gospel to them, even in this passage. We ask that you do a work among us, Lord, and mature us and grow us and sanctify us so that you might be glorified through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, just two verses, uh, Paul commends Phoebe. So three questions that we need to ask this morning about this passage. Number one, who is she? Number two, why does Paul commend her to the Romans? And then thirdly, what does all that teach us? So first of all, who is Phoebe? Well, her name <coughs> excuse me, comes from the Greek word phobos, which means light or fire. The, word, the name Phoebe means radiant or bright. We know that she is a she, because Paul refers to her as our sister. And because he refers to her as our sister, we also know that she is a believer. She is a sister in the Lord. She's a sister in Christ. So she's a follower of Jesus. And we're told that she is from the church at Centria. Centria is a neighboring city of Corinth. We know Corinth because that's where Paul is as he's writing this letter. So he's in Corinth writing this letter to the church in Rome. And he somehow meets this woman named Phoebe. She's from Centria. It's the neighboring town. It's actually the port city for Corinth. Corinth is a bit inland, but Centria is right on the coast on the Corinthian Isthmus. So it's a port city. And while Paul is there, either uh, during this time or in his second missionary journey, he meets Phoebe, he gets to know her, and now he is commending her to the church at Rome in this letter. But Paul calls her a servant of the church at Centria. And this is where the, all the fuss is about Phoebe. What does it mean when Paul says that she is a servant of the church at Centria? If you'll note in your English translation, unless you're using the King James Version, but almost all other English translations of the Bible will include a footnote there next to the word servant. That this word in the ESV, the footnote, reads that this word could also be translated as deaconess. In fact, the NIV translates this as 
Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centria. And I think it includes a footnote that maybe it means servant. So why the footnote there? Well, it's because that the Greek word that is used here, that is translated as servant in the ESV, is the Greek word diakonos, which is the word from which we get our English word deacon, referring to one of the offices in the New Testament church. The English word deacon is simply a transliteration of the Greek word diakonos. That word literally just means servant or one who serves. And and that's how it's most often translated in the New Testament. Uh, We find this word diakonos in the New Testament 29 times in 27 verses. And of those 29 times, 19 of those times is translated as servant. Seven times it's translated as minister, and three times it's translated as deacon, at least in the New American Standard. Jesus uses this word a number of times in the Gospels, and the English translators almost always translate his use of the word as the word servant. Twice we saw in Romans chapter 13 when Paul was talking about our obligation to fall under God-ordained government, our responsibility to follow and obey civil government. Twice in chapter 13, he refers to government, civil government, as the diakonos of God, the servant of God. Clearly, he's not referring there to an office of the church when referring to the civil government. He's referring just to servants, a servant of God. In Romans chapter 15, Paul calls Christ a diakonos. In verse 8 of chapter 15, he says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant, diakonos, a servant to the circumcised, that is the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And so, according to Paul, Christ became a diakonos, a servant to the Jews to demonstrate his truthfulness, to demonstrate God's faithfulness to his people. But it's those three instances of the word diakonos being translated into the word deacon that is most instructive to our time this morning to understand what Paul meant when he was referring to Phoebe as a diakonos of the church in Centria. The first of those three instances where diakonos is translated as deacon is Philippians 1, verse 1. So the very opening phrase of that letter to the church in Philippi, um, his opening greeting there, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, and that servants is the Greek word doulos, which is Paul's favorite word for himself, really meaning slave or bond slave, bond servant. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So in Philippians 1.1, he's combining the office of overseer, elder, alongside diakonos. So he's referring there to the office of deacon. The other time we see it translated as deacon is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the first half of 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is giving the qualifications for those who would serve in the office of elder in the first seven verses. And then in the next few verses, verses 8 through 13, 
he gives the qualifications of those who would serve in the office of diakonos, a deacon in the church. So in those two places alone, we see that word diakonos unambiguously being used to refer to the office of deacon in the local, in the local church. So biblically, there's two offices in the local church. Um, one is the office of overseer, pastor, elder. That's not three offices. We, would believe, we believe that that refers to three functions in one office, pastor, elder, overseer, and that biblically they're responsible for the spiritual authority of the church, spiritual leadership of the church, and the teaching of scriptures in the church. The other office biblically is that of deacon, the diakonos, which by the very name that is used here, which simply means servant or one who serves, the one who helps, as well as the example of the the precursor to deacons that we see in Acts chapter 6. We don't have time to go there, but in the opening opening passage of Acts chapter 6, we see the early church identifying what many believe to be the precursor of deacons. And they're they're about the business of, of serving meals to those who were neglected. And so the biblical office of, of deacon is responsible for serving, for ministering, usually a very tangible need, a material need, a way to serve that helps the pastors and elders and overseers to be able to perform their unique function in the church. So the question for us then is in Romans 16 verse 1, when Paul refers to Phoebe as a diakonos of the church in Centria, what's he talking about? Is he referring to Phoebe as a deacon in the church, referring to an office in the New Testament church? Or is he saying that she was just one who served and one who helped, one who ministered alongside others in the church without any reference to an office in the church? Now, this is really important because if Paul is referring to Phoebe as a deacon in the church, referring to an office in the church, then we have biblical precedent for women serving as deacons in the New Testament church. So it's very, very important. Unfortunately, from this passage alone, we don't get the clarification that we need. We, we, we just simply don't know, based on what Paul says here, whether he's using the word Uh, referring to a servant of the church or whether he's using the word referring to an office in the church, that of deacon. This passage alone simply doesn't give us the clarification that we need. So we need to turn elsewhere. In order to answer the underlying question here, which is, can women serve as deacons in the church? Now, since that question isn't answered specifically in this text that we're covering this morning, I, I want us to I want to lay out for you briefly um, our rationale for why we believe that women did serve as deacons in the New Testament church and why we believe that they can serve as deacons in the New Testament church today. And I I say our rationale because this is something that the elders of New Branch have settled. This is something that we've, we've affirmed together that this is what Scripture says and teaches, although it is not yet in practice at New Branch. More on that in just a moment. So let me give you the argument here for a threefold argument for why we believe women can serve as deacons in the New Testament church. The first rung on this three-rung ladder in this argument 
is that the Greek word that we just talked about, diakonos, the Greek word for deacon is gender neutral. It can, it can either be a masculine noun or a feminine noun. And when it's used in either way, it doesn't change as far as the spelling or the way it looks. Um, it could be either or. And why is that important? Well, some will say, well, the Bible never mentions deaconesses. And they're right. It doesn't. We do not find that word anywhere. I like and affirm the English Standard Version as a faithful translation of the text. But that footnote is wrong. There is no such thing as a deaconess. But the reason why we don't find that word in Scripture isn't because there's necessarily no female deacons. Instead, the reason why we don't find that word deaconess in Scripture is because there is no such Greek word. It doesn't exist. If there were female deacons in the early church, they would not have been called deaconesses because there is no such Greek word. They would have been called deacon. They would have been called deaconess, just as all the others were as well. So you can't use that argument to disprove that they're the existence of women serving as deacons in the New Testament church. But admittedly, neither can you use that argument to prove that there were women serving as deacons. So is there evidence in the scriptures that women served as deacon? And I believe that we do find that. And we find that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, as we mentioned before, Paul is giving qualifications for those who would serve first in verses 1 through 7, for those who would serve as overseer, elder, pastor. And then secondly, in verses 8 through 13, those who would serve as deacons. And in the middle of that, in the middle of his qualifications for those who would serve as deacons, we see qualifications specifically given for women who would serve as deacons. Now, admittedly, this interpretation of 1 Timothy chapter 3 is disputable. And it is disputed by many um, great scholars of the Bible. But I think what we're going to lay out for you this morning is the right way to understand 1 Timothy chapter 3 for two reasons. Number one, I think it's most, most faithful to the original language as we see here. And, and we're going to look at a couple of textual clues that help us arrive at that. Number two, we're in good company. Uh, there are many, many, many very solid Bible scholars, very well-respected Bible scholars who, by the way, also are very staunch complementarians. Um, if, if you want to know the difference between complementarian and egalitarian, we'll have a conversation later. But very staunch complementarians who also agree that this is the best way to understand this verse. People including the likes of John Piper, John MacArthur, D.A. Carson, Tom Schreiner, and many, many, many more. So we're in good company with what I'm about to explain. So verse 11 says, as he's given these qualifications for deacons in the New Testament church, he says in chapter 3, verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So what's in dispute is the translation of the word for wives that we see in verse 11, which is the Greek word gune, G-Y-N-E. It's where we get our word for gynecology. Yes, I use that word on Family Sunday. Gune. It's used, it's used 200, a very, very common Greek word. 
Um, the word gune is used 221 times in the New Testament. 129 of those times, it's simply translated as women. 92 of those times, it's translated as wives. But when it's translated as wives, it's, t- it's, not, it's not the technical word for wife. It's the word for wife in terms of saying, um, she's my woman, or she's her, uh, his, his woman. Um, it's technically the word for women, but when it's used in reference to his woman or um, my woman or whatever, then it's understood to be referring to the wife. So you'll note here that in verse 11, if you're reading out of the ESV, which I am, you're, you're going to see another footnote. And, and most, again, most English translations will include a footnote here. The ESV translates this word as their wives, but the footnote for the ESV says that it could also mean women. The New American Standard, the NIV, take the opposite approach. They simply translate it as women. Women likewise must be dignified and so forth. And then their footnote says it could also mean deaconess or deacons' wives. So, so which is it? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. Is he talking about the wives of deacons or is he talking about women who could possibly serve as deacons in the church? There's a, a couple of textual clues here in the passage that can help us. First of all, in the section right before this, verses 1 through 7, he's giving the qualifications for those who would serve as elder, pastor, overseer, the episkopos. And we know from here and elsewhere in Scripture, when Paul and the other New Testament writers talk about that particular office, we know that elders are responsible for spiritual leadership in the church, spiritual authority and guidance in the church, as well as the teaching of the Scriptures in the church. Which, while those functions of that particular office are not any more important than any other function in the church, it really isn't. It's not more important than any other function in the church, but it requires more intense scrutiny to qualify someone who would serve in the role of elder, pastor, overseer. Why? Because they're going to be given, granted so much authority within the body of Christ. This is how God set up the church. Those who serve in the office of elder, overseer, pastor are going to be granted greater authority in the church. And so while their functions in the church are not important than any, any other functions, the obligation of the church to scrutinize those who may be qualified for that office is much more intense and much more um, deliberate. Now, since that is the case, it would be quite strange. It would be quite odd if we found qualifications for the wives of deacons but we found no qualifications for the wives of elders. If the office of elder required greater scrutiny, then it stands to reason that we would also find qualifications for the wives of elders. But we can go through 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we don't see any. There are none. There are no qualifications for the wives of elders, which leads me to believe that he's not referring to the wives of deacons in verse 11, but instead he's referring simply to women who might serve as deacons. So that's our first textual clue that gives us an indication of what Paul's referring to in verse 11. The second, another clue from Scripture that helps us see this, is that there is no possessive pronoun before the word wives. 
There is no there there. Uh, the ESV adds the word there such that it reads, their wives likewise must be dignified. But if you go to the original text in the Greek, there is no possessive pronoun there. It's simply wives. Wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers and so forth. Or, as I believe it should be read, women. Women likewise should be dignified, not slanderers and so forth. And so there's no possessive pronoun there. Um, In fact, usually when we see the English translators translate the word gune as wife, we see a possessive pronoun, and it only makes sense. His wife, my wife, their wives, and so forth. But we do not find the possessive pronoun here. So why would the ESV translators include the word there there when the word there isn't there? If we remove it, it's just wives or women. So based on those textual clues, I conclude, we conclude, that verse 11 refers to the qualifications for women who would serve as deacons in the church. And then it stands to reasons that if there are biblical qualifications for women to serve as deacons, then obviously that necessarily means that women can serve as deacons in the church. But that's not the end of the reasoning. That's not the end of the argument here. The first The first rung of that uh, ladder is that diakonos is not necessarily masculine or feminine. Um, Secondly, Paul gives qualifications for female deacons. And now thirdly, the role of deacon is not one of authority. The role, the biblical role of the office of the diakonos is not one of spiritual authority. And, And to be quite honest, this is where many churches get all messed up on this. This is, where it, this is where they get tripped up. Because if you don't delineate with clarity, hear me, if you don't delineate with clarity the function of the office of elder over against the function of the office of deacon, then you are going to understandably have a very hard time affirming women as deacons in the church. For example, many traditional Baptist churches, in many traditional Baptist churches, and I say traditional not necessarily historical and not universal, but traditional Baptist churches, deacons often serve as elders. They're exercising spiritual authority. They're ruling. They're leading in the church. They're responsible for oversight for the pastor who is teaching the scriptures. And we know from elsewhere in scripture that those functions, the exercise of spiritual authority and the teaching of scriptures in church, in in, in the body of Christ, are functions that biblically women are not allowed to exercise in the New Testament church. Paul says very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So this is in the context of the gathered body of Christ, the gathered church. He says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Very, very clear limitation there. Now, where does that limitation come from? Is this just Paul's uh, chauvinistic side coming out? It's not. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and you read on in that passage, in the very next verse, he says, For Adam was formed first and then Eve. We read more about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9 and following. Paul roots the limitation on women to not teach the scriptures to men and not to exercise spiritual authority over men in the body of Christ, he roots that limitation to the creation order. 
that God had in mind when he created Adam and Eve. He created them both in the image of God. That should end any question about the importance and dignity of men and women in the body of Christ in in the world. Both male and female were created in the image of God. So it is without question that men and women have equal value, dignity, significance, and importance in the world and in the church, in the body of Christ. But he also created in the creation order distinct roles. Just as he he created distinct roles within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit submitting to the Son, the Son submitting to the Father. But neither one of them are any less God than any of the other. There are distinct roles within the Godhead, even though within the Godhead there is equal divinity. In the same way, when he created man and woman, he gave us equal dignity, value, access to God, significance, importance, all of that. But he also gave us distinct roles in the church and in the home. Here, Paul is talking about distinct roles within the church. We can go to Ephesians 5 and elsewhere and listen to Paul. He talks about distinct roles within the home. But here we're talking about distinct roles within the church. And he gives very clear distinctions that in the body of Christ, in the New Testament church, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So we would understand teaching to mean teaching the scriptures, teaching the word of God. And we would understand the exercise of authority to be that of spiritual authority over man. So what is the office in the church that is responsible for exercising spiritual authority and teaching the scriptures? Is that of elder? Is that of the pastor, elder, overseer, as we saw earlier? So you can see that when a church conflates the functions of the office of deacon with the functions of the office of elder, then it is quite understandable that they would be very resistant to installing women as deacons. Because then, what would she, she be doing? She would be exercising spiritual authority over men. And she would be teaching the scriptures to men. But when you have a more biblical understanding of what an elder is, what a pastor, what an overseer is, that, that they are responsible for exercising spiritual oversight, spiritual leadership, spiritual authority, and teaching the scriptures... And you have a more biblical understanding of what a deacon is, what a diakonos is in that office of the church. That they are a servant. One who is recognized as being exemplary in their service to the body. With no role in spiritual authority or teaching. And when you have those biblical understandings, then the roadblock to women serving as deacons rightly disappears. So based on this understanding, I believe that Phoebe, in Romans 16, verse 1, was a deacon of the church in Centria. Not a deaconess. There is no such thing. She was a deacon. So now you might be asking, well, if we as a church believe that women can be deacons in the New Testament church, then why isn't there a woman as a deacon at New Branch? It's a fair question, right? And if you pose that question to me, I will in all humility, reflect it back to you, the church, and ask you, why haven't you recommended a a woman to serve as deacon at our church? Constitutionally, we follow the biblical model in identifying new deacons. The church recommends individuals to the elders. The elders vet them according to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, and then we present them back to you for vote. 
We have yet to receive a recommendation from the body for a woman to serve as deacons. But I hope that will happen soon. Admittedly, the elders also have the right to submit a woman as a deacon in the church. But it's been our discernment up to this point that this is something that needs to come from the body. We need to have patience and we need to uh, allow the body to come to grips with this and allow this to be something that comes from the body rather than this, this being something that is forced on the body from the elders. But it's our hope that sometime soon a woman who meets the qualifications of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 will be recommended to us and that we will have the distinct privilege of presenting them back to you as a prospective deacon. So we're not going to push that, but I personally, we personally hope and pray that it happens soon. Why? Because there is no biblical argument against it that we believe is valid. So that's a long answer to the first question, who is Phoebe? She's a deacon. She's a deacon in the church in Centria. Second question, so why does Paul commend her? Why does he even introduce her at this point in the letter? And why does he commend her to the church in Rome? He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. He commends Phoebe to the church in Rome, which means that he formally and officially praises her and presents her as one who has the gifts and the abilities and the experience and the know-how and the intelligence and whatever else is needed to do the task for which she is set apart to do, whatever that is. And then he gives three reasons for his commendation in verse 2. Number one, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints so apparently she's going to travel to rome she's going to leave corinth and she's going to travel to rome where these folks are that paul is writing to and he wants them to receive her and to to welcome her but what do you think it means for them to welcome her in the lord in a manner worthy of the saints what do you think that means I think for starters, to be welcomed in the Lord means to be welcomed as a fellow believer who is in Christ. He's telling them, you're in the Lord, she's in the Lord, and so receive her as one of your own. Receive her because she's in Christ. She's a fellow sister in Christ. But to do so in a manner worthy of the saints. I know this is not a major part of this passage, but that really struck me. And I think it struck me because of what we find in the ensuing verses of chapter 16. What does it mean to welcome someone in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints? I wish we had time, actually, to go all the way through chapter 16 this morning. At least the next several verses where Paul exhorts his readers to greet all of those people that he knows and loves and has great affection for deeply. There is so much love and affection on display in that passage. Not, not lustful affection, not amorous affection, but deep Christ-saturated, familial affection. There's so much there. We don't have time to unpack it this morning. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. 
But we see a glimpse of it in Paul's commendation of Phoebe here. Welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Paul, Paul wants the Romans to receive her as family. To welcome her with the warm affection of blood-bought kinship. That she is a beloved sister in Christ. He wants them to see her as a saint in a manner worthy of the saints. He wants wants them to see her as a saint who is a recipient of God's extravagant grace. She is a saint that is made holy. That's what that word means. One who is made holy. And, And she is made holy not because of any holiness that is resident to her, but she is made holy because of the righteousness of Jesus credited to her account because of her faith in Christ alone for rescue from what she deserves. And we see the echo of justification by faith as Paul has been writing about it all throughout this letter. She is one of those saints, Paul says, And I want you to receive her in a manner worthy of being a saint. She's not a saint because of anything in her. You're not a saint if you're a saint because of anything in you, but because a gracious and loving and awesome God has sovereignly and graciously set his electing and choosing love on you. Not because of anything in you, but because in spite of what is in you, he chose to set that saving love on you. And Paul says, that's who she is. She's one of those saints. He has made her a daughter. He has given her new life and made her whole again, and redeemed her, and reconciled her. And church, this is just a taste of what's to come in the next section. It's so much more than just a list of people. But note this. When we see our fellow brothers and sisters in this way, as the humble recipients of God's grace-filled, electing love, then we simply cannot treat them with disdain and dislike and disgust and disrespect. When we see them this way, as Jesus' blood-bought saints, we can only love them. And that's what Paul wants of his readers. He wants them to love Phoebe as a sister just as he does. Receive her as a sister, receive her as a saint, as one of Jesus' blood-bought relatives. Second reason for his commendation of Phoebe here, he says that you may help her in whatever she may need from you. So she's going to stay with them for a while. After she leaves from Paul and goes to them, she's going to stay with them for a while. And he wants them to meet her needs, whatever her needs might be, Help her, serve her, minister to her in whatever way she might need help. So Paul first wants them to welcome Phoebe because of who she is. She's a sister. She's a saint. She's a blood-bought saint from Christ. But also now, he wants them to help Phoebe with her needs. And church, isn't that how we manifest love for one another in the body of Christ? We seek to meet one another's 
needs. That's what, that's what Jacob was talking about. We are one. We are the body of Christ, and we, we are here to meet one another's needs, con- to consider one another's, as Paul says, to consider one another as more important than ourselves, living sacrificially for others, fulfilling our debt of love, as Paul called it, called it in Romans 13, the debt of love that we have for one another's. That we should be paying that debt of love. And then thirdly, he commends Phoebe at the end of verse 2, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. The word patron means benefactor or helper, one who assists in the affairs of someone else. Now, some have looked at the word patron, those from a more egalitarian perspective, uh, would look at the word patron, and they see a hint of leadership in that word. And admittedly, that is a secondary definition of the word uh, patron. The primary def- definition of, is that of benefactor and helper, one who assists in the affairs of others. But there is a secondary understanding in some settings that's it's termed a leader. But I don't think we can look at this verse and say that Paul would refer to Phoebe as his leader. But he does refer to her as, his, as a patron to him. So he's, he's referring to the fact that she is his benefactor. He is a helper who is one who is helping him in ministry. So Paul commends her as one who was incredibly useful and incredibly helpful to many in the body of Christ, including to Paul himself. Bible scholars tell us that Phoebe was probably um, a woman of high social standing, in Centria, in the area surrounding the city of Corinth. Perhaps she was successful in commerce, which would have made sense with Centria being a port city. And apparently she utilized her considerable wealth and her high social standing to help her fellow believers in Christ, especially those who needed help traveling from one part of the empire to another, or to help those who needed help delivering important documents like letters from apostles to outline churches. So most Bible historians, most scholars, most church historians agree that the reason Paul introduces the Roman believers to Phoebe from Centria at this point is because he was going to give her the unique privilege and tremendous responsibility of hand-delivering this letter to the church in Rome. What a tremendous responsibility that was. So what what do we learn from all this? What what do we learn from the fact that um, it looks like Phoebe may have been a deacon in the church in Centria, and and, uh, she was given a tremendous responsibility to um, take this letter to the church in Rome? What does all of this teach us? First of all, as we said before, It teaches us that we can and perhaps should have female deacons at New Branch. In a couple of weeks, we're going to install two new elders and two new deacons. Um, And it's it's my prayer that in a a year's time uh, that we'll have another another time of recommending new deacons and new elders, uh, those who would meet those qualifications. And I hope and pray that a woman will be among them. Now, let me just be frank with you. If that scares you, if that worries you, if that bothers you, if that concerns you in any way, I really want to know. I want you to share that with me. Um, I, I, I typically, I'm not, I'm not a fan of those emails that come on Monday morning, but I really would welcome this. 
I want to I know. Because I, I, want, I want us to walk through this together as a community. I want us to walk through this time as a church. We, we, don't, we don't want to do this um, to prove a point. We don't want to do this to make anyone upset. We don't want to do this to simply make a statement about women's rights in the world and in the church. We want to do this. I want to do this because we have women who qualify as deacons. And we want to recognize them and see them be fully utilized in the body of Christ. Secondly, what else do we learn from this? What are we taught from this passage? That is that women were absolutely critical to the success of the early church. And similarly, they are absolutely critical to the success of the church today. Think about what this letter is. The letter to the Romans that we've spent three years in. It is the crown jewel of the Apostle Paul's letters to the church's epistles. It is the climax of his theological writings, of which there is a mound. And he entrusts it to Phoebe, not because she's a woman, not because he's, he wants to make sure that women have the right kind of roles and, and get, get plenty of, of significance in the church. He entrusts it to Phoebe because she has the gifts, the abilities, the intelligence, the know-how, the experience, the contacts, and whatever else is needed to get this letter from Corinth to Rome. And without Phoebe, Paul's letter to the Romans doesn't get delivered to Rome. And without this letter getting delivered to Rome, it doesn't get included in the canon. And how important is this letter to our understanding of the gospel, of salvation, of justification, and everything else that we've been learning about in the last three years. And as we'll see in this next section of chapter 16, as we look in a couple of weeks at Paul's personal greetings, nine of the 25 individuals that he singles out for greeting by name are women. And that's significant, especially given the setting of his writing of this letter. In first century Roman Empire, women couldn't vote, women couldn't own land, and women couldn't hold public office. And as a result of their diminished role in public life, they are named much less frequently than men by regular, everyday, run-of-the-mill ancient Roman historians. You just don't find them named very often. But here we have a Christian historian, the Apostle Paul, listing a bunch of folks who lived in Rome who were prominent figures in the early church, notable among the masses, and a third of them were women. That's not the only lesson of verses 3 through 16, as we'll see there are many, but it is one of them. Women were essential to the church in Paul's day, and they are essential to the church today. The evangelical church in America today, unfortunately, as well as the broader culture in which we live in, focuses so much on what women can't do in the church that what's lost in translation is what women can do in the church. Outside of exercising spiritual authority over men and teaching the scriptures to men, which we've already established are functions that are reserved for the office of elder pastor overseer, outside of that, women can do anything in the church. Can, should, and I would say must 
if the church is going to be what God intends for her to be. So may we elevate the importance and the significance of women in the body of Christ. And let us thank God for his kind and gracious provision of godly, intelligent, faithful women who serve at New Branch, regardless of office, regardless of title. And then finally, as we learned earlier, this passage should teach us the value and the importance of seeing one another as blood-bought saints. That we would learn how to welcome one another in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. May we have that kind of warm affection of blood-bought kin and see each other as the humble recipients of God's grace. I would encourage you over the next week or two, won't be here next week, but we'll dive into the verses 3 through 16 the, the Sunday after next. I would encourage you in the ensuing weeks to read through this passage and look at the relationships that Paul has. Look at the Christ-centeredness of those relationships. Look at the warm, familial deep-seated, blood-bought affection that Paul has for these individuals in the body of Christ. And then let us ask ourselves, how can we mirror that kind of love for one another? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. It's so real, so true. I pray, Father, that you would change us as a result of this, that you would alter our opinions if they're not in alignment with your word, that you would modify our church if it's not in alignment with your word. You are the pastor of this church, you are the head of this church, and your word reigns supreme. We want to order ourselves, our lives, our families, and our church around this book and so we thank you for it Father I pray that if there's, if there's anything that I've said this morning that's not in accordance with your word may it fall on deaf ears but Lord to the degree that it is in accord with your word Lord may it, may it not stop at our ears may it, may it drive to our heart and change us and make us more holy make us a people who bring glory to you with our lives. And God, we pray for those among us this morning in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our community, in our neighborhoods who are not saints. They are sinners who are desperately lost apart from Christ, just as we were. God, we pray that you'd use us to take advantage of opportunities to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. May we unapologetically and courageously point to Jesus Christ as our only hope, as the anchor that we hold within the veil, the one in whom we put all of our hope and all of our trust to be rescued from what we deserve. And may you use that proclamation of the gospel to bring faith to those individuals and make them brothers and sisters, make them saints who worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.